Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah. You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. 
Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another Ion Travel podcast. On this edition, I'll talk with William McGee, author of Attention Passengers. McGee is also the aviation safety advisor for Consumer Reports, so we're covering a number of bases. Then, an extended chat with journalist and passenger advocate, also contributor to USA and the Washington Post, Christopher Elliott. On the insidious return of drip pricing, you haven't heard about it, it's information you've got to have before you ever travel. And last, but not least, my talk with journalist Elizabeth McGowan and the story of her amazing bike ride across America. First up, William McGee. The pandemic has completely disrupted and upended the travel industry. The loss of revenue in this country alone because of lack of tourism visitation is going to be in the $600 billion to $800 billion level, and it's counting every single day. So what does everybody want to know? Where can I go? But most importantly, how can I go? How can I be safe? Will it be safe? What are my guarantees? And which mode of transportation is going to give me the best odds of not getting the infection, not getting the virus? Well, here to give his uh, version of his own version of of planes, trains, and automobiles is airline passenger advocate, also the author of Attention All Passengers, our good friend William McGee. Hello, sir. How are you doing, Peter? Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, you're welcome. Let's talk about planes, trains, and automobiles. Now, I'm one of those guys, and by the way, I know if you disagree with me, you will not hesitate, but (laughs) I don't really have a real problem as long as everybody's behaving and wearing their masks and and practicing basic hygiene and protocol of getting on an airplane. Uh, I like the HEPA filters. Um, I like the idea that some airlines like Delta and JetBlue are blocking the middle seat, and even the airlines that aren't, I understand that, you know, you know, social distancing in an airline cabin are somewhat mutually exclusive to begin with. But there's also the train. And what is Amtrak doing? Uh, they've cut their capacity in half, meaning they, you know, no one's going to be sitting next to you on any train. Uh, right. And then, of course, there's your own automobile getting behind the wheel of, of a car that you already know, that already knows you. And with, I'm assuming, close to some members of your family. So I know you just did a little bit of research on this. You talked to the experts. So give me planes, trains, and automobiles. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this is one of those issues where I thought, let let me go to the experts. Let me talk to statistical experts and medical experts because maybe I'm missing something. Uh, I, I when the article posted on Condé Nast Traveler's site, someone wrote underneath "duh," "duh," you know. And, uh, sometimes, uh, you know. Uh, is unfair because you do need to look, you know, dig into the weeds and find the statistics. So um, what, what, what I was told repeatedly is air travel uh, statistically is, is going to be more dangerous for the time being. And we can talk about that at length and, and some of the things that should be done to, to improve it. Um, you know, I, I agree with your, your opening statement, but that, that big word there is if, right, if everyone is socially distancing, if everyone is wearing masks. Amtrak has some advantages, because as you point out, first of all, there's never any middle seats on Amtrak, even if it's full. But now, if it's not a stranger, the seat next to you, they're guaranteeing to be empty. So that's good, obviously. Uh, You also don't have the choke points usually on Amtrak that you do in an airport, right? So, I mean, you know, we're talking a lot about airline cabins, but it's the whole experience, right? It's the the whole door-to-door experience. And airports, you know, you're gonna have a, you could have a choke point at check-in. You could have a, definitely a choke point at the security uh, screening. Again, at, at at boarding, jet bridge, and then right into the cabin. Right. So every step of the way, there's problems there with social distancing. Particularly at some smaller, older airports that don't have a lot of space to spread you out. You know, thinking about you know LaGuardia and Washington National and others. Um, and then of course there's the car. And um, you know, as you point out, uh, if 
uh, if you're in your own car and you're with people you know, then that, statistically that should be safest. Uh, I spoke to some people that said, don't forget, again, it's the whole trip. So when you stop for gas and you stop to eat and you stop in hotels, whatever, um, you know, you need to use those same precautions. Um, and if it's not your car, if it's a rental car, uh, you know, the major rental companies all have uh, on their website what they're doing. And they're, you know, they're wiping down just about everything you could wipe down. But, you know, I think, Peter, a lot of us have become fearless stronger these days. And we're, you know, we're <laughs> when my son was, was little like every parent I used to travel with a diaper bag and now I think you need to have sort of an adult diaper bag with wipes and masks and disinfectant and all the rest of it and if you're going to get in a, a rental car it's probably a good idea to wipe down the mirrors and the doors and all you know everything you're going to touch um you know one and more keep time in, and keep in mind that while the TSA still won't let you bring a 12 ounce can of diet coke on board they will let you bring 12 ounces of hand sanitizer on board Absolutely. Right. Right. I mean, I guess that's another discussion for another day, the, the ways and means of the TSA. But um, you, you're right. Um, so, you know, like I say, it's sort of like everybody's carrying their own little their own little kit with them now. Um, it's just a good idea. You know, you need to have extra masks. You need to have wipes. Uh, when you get on an airplane, I mean, just think about it. I'm not trying to scare anyone, but just think about it. All of the touch points, as they call it, um, you know, when you sit down in an airline seat, right, the window shade, the, the of course, the the, the feedback, the, you know, the, uh, the tray table, the lights, everything. Now, the airlines are all saying that they're doing a better job of enhanced cleaning. And some of them even have videos on their websites about it. But let's just stop a moment. Is that happening all throughout the day? And the answer seems to be, in most cases, absolutely not. It's mostly happening on the overnight, right? On what the airlines called RON, remain overnight. So if you're on a 6 a.m. flight, well, great. But what if you're on a 9 p.m. flight and you're on an airline that, you know, does a lot of point-to-point short-haul flying? You could be the sixth or seventh person sitting in that seat since it last got an enhanced cleaning. So that's why I strongly yeah. recommend, you know, you bring your own stuff with you to wipe down. Well, as I said earlier, you know, the design of an airplane cabin does not lend itself by definition to great social distancing. Blocking the middle seat, it sounds pretty good. And and by the way, Delta would be the first airline to tell you that the number one reason given by passengers for booking that airline right now is just that, that they know the center seat's going to be open. Same thing I'm hearing from the folks at JetBlue. However, even if that center seat is open, the distance between you and the window seat and the other guy in the aisle is maybe 25 inches. That's not even, that's a little bit more than two feet. That's not six feet. And the crazy part is the distance between you and the window seat and the guy sitting behind you might only be 14 inches and then he sneezes. Yes, exactly. You know, this is this is one of the reasons that, you know, airline travel statistically is riskier than both Amtrak and going by highway. You know, you brought up a couple of good points. First of all, on behalf of Condé Nast Traveler, uh, a couple of months ago, I also did a piece where I researched the HEPA filters that everyone talks about. You know, you hear these HEPA filters on aircraft. They're as good as what you have in, you know, hospital operating rooms, et cetera. And they're great. I talk to experts about them. But you have to stop a moment and you just have to sort of use common sense. The filter is, you know, up in the ceiling of the of the cabin and you're sitting next to someone who just sneezed or just coughed, those particles are not going to get to the filter before they get to you. That's just the reality, you know. Now, if someone sneezes eight rows away, it's probably going to get to the filter before it gets to you. So that's the good news. But we're talking about very low-tech technology here. We're talking about a mask that can cost, you know, $2. 
um, that you can't you can't underestimate how important masks are. And you know that in itself is problematic. And uh, you know we can talk about what airlines are doing and not doing, and we can talk about what the U.S. Department of Transportation is most definitely not doing. You know, it's interesting that when you think about the innovations in passenger rights over the last, let's say, 10 years, it couldn't come from state legislatures because under federal deregulation laws, the states have no opportunity to monitor or control airlines. It it has to come either from Congress, which they've been loath to do every year. You and I know this, William, at least 20 bills are introduced in the area of passenger rights. Uh, airline yes. passenger rights, and they never, they either never get out of committee or they never get voted on because of the intense lobbying efforts of the of the industry. So it remains in the in the basically in the in the uh, in the area of the U.S. Department of Transportation in their rulemaking area to make a difference. And the one that really made a difference a couple of years ago was the famous tarmac delay rule. And we all remember those terrible winters, uh, maybe eight or nine years ago, where you had people stuck on planes for five and six hours at a time, lawsuits were filed. So finally, the U.S. Department of Transportation did issue a rule, which the airlines fought tooth and nail, and they lost. And the rule basically said that once you push back from the gate, if you don't, if you're that delayed, then if you don't get back to that gate within three hours, then you're subject to a fine of something like $27,500. I have no idea how they came up with that figure, but $27,500 per passenger for any minute that you're over three hours. And on a 737, we're already into seven figures in terms of the penalty. And the airlines kept on complaining it would never work, it would never work, it would never work. You know how many times planes were stuck on the tarmac over three hours last year or the year before or the year before that when the rule was in place? Maybe four? And... And even there, there were some mitigating circumstances where the airlines could prove it really wasn't their fault. But it cut down the number of tarmac delays by like 97%. So where can we look to the USDOT now to make a difference again? Well, you raise a great point, Peter. Um, You know, many of us remember how 9-11 affected the airline industry. And, um, you know, at that time, under President Bush, and I don't think anybody would ever say that President Bush was, you know, in love with uh, regulation, but his Secretary of Transportation, Norman Mineta, I went back and, and looked at the fine print to make sure I had the dates right. He acted within days. Uh, we're now in the fifth or sixth month of knowing about coronavirus, and we're still waiting for this DOT to act. Um, you know I wear a lot of hats, and one of the hats I wear is I'm the aviation advisor uh, to the advocacy arm of Consumer Reports. And um, uh, in that role, we and other consumer advocates have been repeatedly and repeatedly asking DOT Secretary Elaine Chow to take some sort of action. There has been nothing, nothing put forth that is mandatory from the DOT all these months later for airlines, for airports, for passengers. Um, they put out a 44-page uh guide to what airlines and airports could do, but nothing is mandatory. And it's just unacceptable. Um, You know, we've been very vocal in saying that Secretary Chow is not fulfilling her most important responsibility, which is to protect all of us, passengers, airline workers, crew members, everyone. That's, That's their number one responsibility. And so when we talk about airlines, you know, you gave credit to Delta, and that's fair, you know, for for, uh, empty middle seats. Right now, among the big four in the U.S., Delta and Southwest are saying the seats will be uh, empty in the middle, American and United are not. But from my perspective, this is really not something that we should have airlines competing on. We don't allow airlines in this country to compete on safety. We don't allow them to compete on security. We shouldn't allow them to compete on life and death health issues. And this is clearly a role for Secretary Chow to step in. We've looked at the, the legalities of it. 
Um, she may not have the ability to put long-term or permanent changes in place, but she has authority in this emergency, you know, where, again, I mean, it's not hyperbolic. This is a life and death situation. And there are no rules right now in social distancing in airports or in airplane cabins. There are no rules on mass. And, and to be clear, I'm not holding myself out as an expert on these things, on, on pandemics. Most of us are not. But the experts need to be put in a room and come up with the best policies. And then they have to be mandatory. Because when we you know, leave you it up to the airlines. You, yeah, you mentioned the DOT, the, the, the lack of a DOT rule on masks. You know, you cannot sit on a plane and not fasten your seatbelt. You're in violation of a DOT rule. You right. cannot interfere with a direct order of a flight attendant. That's a DOT rule. You're violating a federal order. I cannot believe that they haven't come in with a mandatory rule on the wearing of masks. It's, it's a no-brainer. And this is not a political issue. This is an intelligence and a safety issue. And when we come back, there are other issues that the DOT hasn't made, made a stance on, which are also no-brainers. In fact, in one case, they even have a rule in place. There's a rule on the books, and they haven't taken an enforcement action when there have been such clear, rampant, and numerous violations. This is the number one item of complaint that I get on this show from all of our listeners. Their inability to get a refund on a flight that was canceled by an airline due to the pandemic. And there is, as you know, a rule on the books from the U.S. Department of Transportation that predated the pandemic by years. And that rule basically says, if an airline cancels your flight, pandemic or not, not you canceling the flight, but the airline canceling the flight, then you're entitled to a full refund back to your original form of purchase even if it was a non-refundable ticket. And there are still billions of dollars. Our good friend Scott McCartney from the Wall Street Journal reported on this last week. The airlines are still holding on to billions of dollars that should have been refunded when there's a clear DOT rule in place. And by my estimation, the only thing that the DOT has done has sent a letter, the agency has sent a letter to the airline saying, please refund the money, pretty please. Right. That doesn't that doesn't impress me. No, me either. Uh, and and we have been very very vocal about this for months now at Consumer Report. Uh, DOT Secretary Lane Chow published an op-ed a few months ago in USA Today in which she asked or urged the airlines to give refunds. And I mean, when I read it, I thought my head was going to explode. I thought, you know, you're the one person in the country that can make them do it. Why not do that? And uh, you know, it's just we have just been inundated at Consumer Report with complaints about this. We put a petition up and it's at something like 115,000 signatures now. We asked for people to share their stories with us about complaints. We've gotten over 3,000. Uh, it's just outrageous. And then the DOT's own complaint statistics, they have multiplied by hundredfold, thousandfold. It's incredible how many complaints they're getting. And it's unacceptable. You know, those of us who have locked horns with the airlines over legislation and regulation over the years, we know that this is an industry that doesn't want any regulation, even on safety issues. They don't want regulation. Well, they got what they wanted. They now have a DOT secretary who is allowing them to do whatever they want virtually. And on this issue of not, you know, requiring NAS, is that working out for the airlines? Forget the forget the health aspect from a from a dollars and cents standpoint. Is it working out for the airlines? Because people are afraid to fly now because they know that it's the wild west on airplanes. And so they're saying, well, I'll, you know, I just had a friend that took a train on a thousand mile trip, and I know people that are driving, you know, for two thousand miles take kids to college and things like that. And so 
the DOT has failed all of us, both on the economic side by not, you know, enforcing the refunds and by tightening some of the loopholes on the refunds. I mean, really, just step back a moment. What other industry is like this? What other industry, you know, in which you put money down and then you're not given the product says, well, we're going to hold on to it for a year or two. I mean, try ordering something online from Amazon. And then they tell you after you've, you know, swiped your credit card that it's not in stock. It'll be here next year. You're going to get a refund. That's what the Fair Credit Billing Act is all about. So we have been pounding and pounding the DOT, asking them to enforce this, and they haven't. Now, this, of course, the airline industry already got a bailout from all of us taxpayers through the CARES Act. This is on top of that. Now they're asking individual Americans, you know, to float them hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars at a time in interest-free loans. It's not acceptable. Now, I'm not a conspiracy nut, but I will suggest this. What was Elaine Chow's former position before she became Secretary of Transportation? Do you remember? Well, I know that she was at uh, she was at another department. Was it the uh, Commerce Department? No, at one point she was Labor Secretary. Oh, uh, Labor, yeah, but, right, right. But there was yeah. a but but there was a time in between, and that time in between, she served on the board of. Northwest Airlines. Right. So right. I'm not going to suggest that there's a conflict of interest. I'm just going to report that she held that position. And now she's the Secretary of Transportation. I'll let everybody else draw their own conclusions here. But this is not the... Look, I'm not asking to beat up on the airlines. I'm asking the DOT to enforce their own rules. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's all we're asking as well. And and so, you know, the point I made with, you know, talking about the airlines anathema to any sort of regulation is this is what they wanted. And now they're getting it. And it's not working out for them. My thanks to William. And now, before you ever reserve a room, check in, or either check out of a hotel, beware of drip pricing. It's back. Christopher Elliott has just a few things to say about it. Joining us now, a good friend of the show, and I'd like to say a regular because he's on all the time. You'll see him in USA Today in the Washington Post, uh, one of the co-founders of uh, Travelers United and Elliott Advocacy, the one and only Christopher Elliott. Hello, Christopher. Hey, Peter. How are you? I'm good. You know, every time we get a chance to talk... There's something else that bothers me, and I think also bothers you, and that is that, you know, old habits sometimes die hard, especially, and it comes to light at, at, at very sensitive moments like this, when people are trying to figure out, should I travel again? How I can travel again? How can I be safe and smart at the same time? And what I'm noticing, and we're getting lots of emails on this, is that Peter, people are going, you know, they're going to back, back to check into hotels and try to do it safely and make sure that the, all the cleaning protocols and the disinfectant protocols are in place. And then they go to check out and the hotel hits them with like a $30, $40, $50 a day resort fee. Are they kidding? (laughs) I wish they were. Yeah, you know, as you know, we talked about this before. Hotels have done this for years and years. just a way of making more money. And you would think that during a pandemic, they would not do it. That they would just, you know, lay low for a while, charge us the rate that they actually quoted us. But they're not. I just did a piece in the Washington Post, and uh, they're up to their old tricks, unfortunately. You know, when we go back to the history of this, the Federal Trade Commission actually sent a warning letter to so many major hotel groups and corporations and brands. And this goes back at least four years ago, if I remember correctly, warning them (laughs) that what they were doing was constituting something called drip pricing, meaning not revealing this sort of hidden fee called a resort fee, or the one that I love, love the most is their other use, euphemism for it called the hospitality fee. Uh, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, it shows up on your bill. And if you're staying somewhere for five nights, that's another $150 you didn't count on for what, getting you a towel at the pool? Uh, and I, I know why they're doing it. They want to be competitive on rate because it's going to get your attention. They just don't want to be competitive on value. And even though the FTC warned these organizations, they're as you say, they're back to their old tricks. The problem was the warning 
that they issued. It was not the kind of warning that you or I would have wanted. They just basically said you have to disclose the resort fee. So what the hotels did was to comply, they revealed the final rate at the end, just before you booked, which is not good enough. Because as I note in the story, a lot of times, you know, you see a great rate and you're committed to it. And you've already told your family that you're going to, you know, we're all going to Las Vegas, something like that. And then you uh, you go through the process of actually booking it. And, oh, oops, did we fail to mention that there's going to be this resort fee at the end? And, and as you say, also, the resort fees are these amorphous fees that no one really understands. They're for things that the hotel should be giving as, a, you know, should be including in the rate. Things like hotel towels or... Or, um, you know, daily cleaning, things like that. That should all be included in, in the price, and it's not. But here's my position, and tell me if you agree with this. As long as they want to play that game, we get into an area called failure to disclose. If they don't disclose it at the time you book, if they don't disclose it at the time you check in, uh, my, you know, my position is then you're well within your rights to dispute the charge. If they don't disclose it, absolutely. And I've talked to people uh, who have actually gone back to their credit card, filed a dispute, and said, my hotel gave me this rate, and this is the rate that they charged me, and they've had it reversed. So they've had their bank actually side with them and take the resort fee off. And the other thing that I suggest to everybody, and we're all victims of this because sometimes we're just, you know, we're not paying attention. How many times have you been late to get out of a hotel to catch a plane or go back home? And you don't really either look at the bill or they say they'll, they'll email it to you. And then, of course, you get home and get the sticker shock about the resort fee or some other charges they might have tacked on. For me, I've learned this the hard way. What I do is the night before I check out, when I come back to the hotel after dinner or something, I'll go to the front desk and ask them to print up a copy of my, of my bill. So if, I, if there's something there, I see it right there in black and white. I can dispute it right then and there. And you're right. No one does that. Uh, people are on vacation. They they don't want to be bothered by a bill, and they uh, sometimes don't actually see what they've been charged until they get their credit card statement, which is you know four or five weeks later, sometimes. Yeah. And by then, it's it's really really hard to to do anything. Your your best bet is to know what the charges are, the final charges are before you check out, and then you can talk to someone at the front desk or, if necessary, to a manager. All right, so here's my question for you, Mr. Elliott. What's the most absurd surprise hotel fee you've ever seen? Um, oh, man, that's a hard one because there are so many. Uh, I love the ones uh, for the concierge, you know, whether you use a concierge or not. There's uh, also one for uh, receiving, a, I think, a fax. They'll charge you extra for that. The, but really, the worst fees are the ones that they, they don't really tell you what they are. Um, I love the ones, the, the resort fees, where you look at the actual description and then it says uh, online, uh, free local calls. If they're free, then you shouldn't have to pay for them, right? So th- there's that word free. <laughs> so well, I'll, give you, I'll, I'll give you two of them, and they both drove me completely batty. One was, as many listeners know, uh, I don't check bags on airlines. I think there are only two kinds of airline bags, carry on and lost. So for me... In my case, I FedEx my bags, and I do it ahead of time, three days in advance, or sometimes FedEx ground. And I've done it for like nine or ten years. And there are other services you can use, you know, DHL in the old days, but you can certainly use UPS or about 17 other courier services. I was staying at the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas, and I needed to send a bag back to New York. And I carry all my own labels and all my own luggage wrappers. So I packed everything in the bag, and I put the label on the handle, and it was all set up. It was already prepaid. 
And I called downstairs to the bellman and said, can you send a bellman up? I just need to send a FedEx out. And I said, oh, we don't do that. What, you don't, you don't send a bellman up to the room to get a bag? Well, no, we don't, we don't do FedEx. I said, what do you mean? Don't you just call FedEx and they come to the hotel? No, you've got to go to the business center. Really? Well, as everybody knows in Las Vegas, to get from your room to the business center requires basically marathon running. And so I schlepped this bag. Thank God it had wheels. I take it all the way down to the business center. Remember, it's already pre-labeled, pre-labeled, ready to go. And there's a long line. And I walked up to the, by the time I got to the counter, I said, here's the bag. I just need to get FedExed. And they called themselves a FedEx office. Well, they weren't a FedEx office. They were an independent contractor. And their service charge for processing the FedEx was $50. And no so way. I said, oh, yeah. And I said, this is so absurd. You know what I did, Chris? I walked out in front of the hotel on the strip in Las Vegas, and I flagged down a, a passing FedEx truck. I just gave it to him, and off it went. No, no problem. Chris, the one that happened to me happened a couple of years ago, and I'll name names. It was The Point in uh, Arizona, in Phoenix, or Scottsdale. And I checked into the hotel. I was there to give, this is like the perfect ironic story. I was there to give a speech to the Hotel Innkeepers of America, people who owned hotels. It was a conference. I checked in at about 8.30 at night. Um, I just had a carry-on bag, didn't need a bellman. Got my room key, gave them my credit card. Uh, I saw the bellman there. We exchanged pleasantries, but didn't need his help. Went to the room, had a room service dinner. The next morning at 6 a.m., I'm getting ready to uh, do the breakfast speech, reading the newspaper, and under my door comes my bill. And I look at it. And what did I see on the bill? Well, there was the room charge. We got that. There was the room service charge. We got that. But the next charge you're never going to guess. Are you ready? A $10 charge, Chris. Mandatory tip to Bellman. <laughs> it's like, what? Well, remember, I met the Bellman the night before. His name was Manny. So I called down to the front desk. He was still on duty. I said, Manny, remember me from last night? Right. Did I use your services last night? No, sir. Uh, did you see me take my bag to the room? Yeah. What is this mandatory tip to Bellman for $10? He says, oh, yeah, I know. I know all about that. I said, well, just tell me this. Did you get that money? He said, no, it doesn't go to me. I said, where does it go? He says, nobody knows. I said, Manny, uh, where are you this morning about 8.30? He said, why? I said, I want you to be my guest at a speech. And I brought him in. And remember, I'm speaking to 450 hotel owners who will be there for the next three days. So they haven't seen their bill yet. And I got up to speak and I was talking about where hotels get in trouble with ridiculous charges. I said, I got a great example. Let me tell you what happened last night. And I talked about checking in. I told the whole story that I just told you. And I said, a $10 tip was a $10 charge was on my bill this morning for a mandatory tip to Bellman. I said, uh, in fact, I asked the Bellman to come in this morning. And I interviewed Manny in front of 450 hoteliers who were getting very nervous in the room. And all of a sudden, there's a, there's a hand waving in the back of the room. And I said, yes, you have a question? It was the general manager of the hotel who said, oh, we'll be glad to take it off your bill. I said, I don't think so. I said, there are 450 people here who are staying with you. You're going to have to take it off their bill too. And he said, well, I can't do that. I said, well, then no problem. And I held up the bill and I said, what are you doing tomorrow morning about 830? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm flying out of here right after the speech. I want you to turn on your TV tomorrow morning at about 8.30. And in those days, I did the Today Show, and that was my segment on the Today Show the next morning. Now, you would think, based on that, they would have taken that 
that whole idea out. I was back at that hotel a year later. The same thing happened. <laughs> the accountants no were running the asylum. They do not realize how much ill will they engender, right? No. And, you know, and I'll tell you, the industry that's really bad about mandatory tips is, you know it, the cruise industry. They are. And I mean, I, I don't want to beat up on them right now, but uh, you can't board a cruise without having some kind of mandatory tip added to your bill. Well, on many cruise lines, there are some Silver Sea and a few others that don't have them at all. Uh, that doesn't mean people won't tip, but but they if they want to tip, they're doing it out of the you know the goodness of their heart because they had great service, not because they were forced to do it. It all gets Which is down, exactly of course, as it should be. Right, but it all gets down to the way they structure the payment of their crew and how they you know how they earn their money, which is not often fully disclosed to the passengers. I know it's a, it's a little crazy, but yeah, I think the bottom line for for all of us here, whether it's my story about the bellman or the resort fee or or the tipping on cruises is. If it's fully disclosed, and I mean fully disclosed, and you know exactly what you're getting, you know why you're getting it, and why you're paying it, I suppose that's okay, although I would still argue that if it's that confusing, it should be negotiable. And I see it every time. You know, I see hotels race to take these resort fees off the bill when people challenge them, simply because they already know it's confusing. They're just trying to see if they can get away with it. It's, 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 it's somewhat nefarious, but... I'm encouraging everybody. I'm sorry, Chris. Go yeah. ahead. Well, I was going to just say I think I think it's it's more than even nefarious. It's, it's morally wrong to be doing this. If it's if it's a mandatory charge, it should be included in the rate. And uh, the fact that it's not means that you know these hotels are not telling the truth about their rates. And and you know I find it shocking that the point did not remove its mandatory. Bellman tip after you challenged them. That just goes to show how dependent these hotels are. And again, we were talking in the previous segment about how uh, hotels are back to their old tricks. Even during a pandemic when their occupancy rates are below 50%, so that half of their rooms are vacant and they're still doing it. It just yeah. goes to show that they, they can't get away from these fees. They're dependent. Their entire businesses are mod the business model is fees fees and deception my thanks to chris elizabeth mcgowan is an award-winning journalist but nothing prepared her for the biggest challenge of her life she chronicled it all in out peddling the big sea my healing cycle across america she talks to me about the lessons she learned and most importantly applied if you hadn't noticed recently uh try buying a bicycle most bike shops are sold out uh Go online, tough to find. Even renting bikes is difficult. In the age of COVID-19, uh, many of us have come to the not so uh, <laughs> brilliant resolution that, uh, or revelation, I should say, that maybe we should get on you know, a bike and go, go exploring. Talk about social distancing, getting outside in the air. That gives us a reason for rediscovering our own city, our own neighborhood, and in many cases, our own country. My next guest had another motivation for getting on her bicycle. She's the author of Out Pedaling the Big Sea, My Healing Cycle Across America, and I mean across America. Elizabeth McGowan, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm elated to be with you. You know, the um, I remember a book that I read many, many years ago, and I know you did too, uh, by William uh, Lee's Teat Moon called Blue Highways. And yeah. for those people who, who are not familiar with the book, I, I still recommend you get it. I'm sure you can still find it online uh, or at a good used bookstore what he did was he took the old Rand McNally uh, road atlases and just picked the blue highways, not the interstates, 
but the two-lane roads that essentially connected America. And that's how you're going to see America. You're not going to just stop at a at a mall or a truck stop. You're you're going to go through every town and village and secondary and tertiary city in America and see exactly the evolution of this country. In your case, you decided to bicycle 4,000 miles, but you had another motivation, didn't you? Well, I did, yeah. I, I mean, it was multi-layered, and I was... What I was doing was celebrating being five years cancer-free. I had undergone a decade of surgeries, chemotherapies, and other treatments for melanoma, which is a type of cancer that starts as a skin, usually on your skin. I was in my early 20s when this happened. It spread to my internal organs. So I was when I got a five-year uh, clean bill of health, I got on the bicycle, and I named this trip Heels on Wheels. So... Can I, ask a stu- can I ask a stupid question? Yeah, sure. Were you bicycling before this? I was. I, was, I had not done anything uh, where I was carrying my own gear. I was strictly a recreational bicyclist. I was living in Wisconsin at the time, and they have a lot of rails-to-trails. Um, they have a good system there, so I rode a lot of those. And for those people who don't know what rails-to-trails are, they're the old abandoned railroad tracks that have been converted by many states around the country into really great hiking and biking trails. Correct, yeah. So did you, did you have to, I mean, going on a 4,250-mile bicycle trip is, takes a lot of planning. It takes a lot of perseverance. I would say it would even take a lot of training. Yes, and one of the reasons I started pedaling in the middle of August, I actually finished in the uh, beginning of November of the year 2000, is because I didn't want to, A, deal with the 100-degree-plus temperatures in Kansas, because you go all the way across Kansas, and I that gave me an opportunity to do some training in the spring of Wisconsin, where spring comes later. So I had I had built that planning in. And I also organized this as a fundraiser for the hospital in Wisconsin that I um, hold responsible for saving my life. So I had organized this. I got my maps from a place called Adventure Cycling, and I had I had mapped out just enough. I didn't overplan, but I had planned. So. And of course, the worst five-letter word in my vocabulary is plans, because every time you have a plan, it doesn't work. So I'm assuming on this 4,250-mile jaunt, not everything went according to plan. Well, that's right, and that's why my advice, I guess, is to to plan but not over-plan because you'll end up in trouble. I mean, uh, my fourth day out, I believe it was, Monmouth, Oregon, you know, you start in Astoria, Oregon, and your destination is is, um, Yorktown, Virginia on this, this route, which was actually inaugurated in 1976 as the bike centennial route to celebrate the nation's 200th birthday and i it's the granddaddy route and i wanted to do this one because it, you really immersed yourself in the country but yeah i i managed i was looking at my map which was you know pinned to my handlebar boom i i wasn't paying attention i crashed into a curb i injured my arm i mean i thought my ride was over but being who I am, I got back up and <laughs> repositioned my arm on the handlebar. You know, I think I popped an ibuprofen and said, Elizabeth, you were going to buck down and you were going to do this thing. So I did. And I was. And, 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 and what were you averaging a day in terms of miles? 
You know, my longest day was 89 and a half miles, I believe. Whoa. People think that you have to do these mega miles. That really wasn't my intention because part of this was outreach. I, I was carrying um, a lot of my weight was brochures about my ride because this was outreach and sent off coupons for uh, sunscreen because, you know, prevention of melanoma is sunscreen. So that was that was key. So outreach was crucial. So I'm, like you said, blue highways. I'm going through little towns. I'm stopping overnight. I'm camping at churches. I'm camping in small municipal parks. And I would go to hospitals. I would go anywhere and do outreach. So, you know, being a reporter, I'm not, I don't meet strangers. So I didn't have trouble doing that. Sometimes at the end of the day, you're a little tired, but I thought, you know, this is, this is, I'm doing this once, I'm going to make it count. So that's and what I and, did. And we're talking low budget. We're talking low budget. I mean, I bought that bike new for $279, and I wanted every penny to go to cancer research. I mean, that was the whole point of this fundraiser. So people would give me money along the way, I'd mail it to the hospital. Um, people would, you know, they had organized a website at the hospital so you could send in money. Um, I had a little coupon on my brochure that I that I um, handed out. But yes, it, it was low budget. I, I'm a backpacker, so I was able to recycle a lot of my gear. And um, I was camping. That, that's what I did. I, I, occasionally, I stayed in a hotel um, because people told me I had to when it was pouring rain. <laughs> Okay, that, I, I get that part. Uh, now, listen, you had so many opportunities to be surprised along this route or to be disappointed. Which one was it? I was surprised, and I was the, o- the only disappointing part was the amount of trash I saw on some of the roads. I don't know what how people threw so many things out their, their window, but... Um, out their windows. I, I did pick up an onion one time and, and cook it, though. So that that was the most helpful thing I found. <laughs> so that was but, that um, was your, wait, that was your version of roadkill. Exactly, <laughs> exactly the vegetable. But listen, people were so kind. I cannot tell you how many times. That was the great thing about not over-planning. I sort of knew where I would be staying. I'd stop in these little towns because I had a good set of maps that gave you a list of you know, various amenities. I didn't know exactly what was there, but had an idea. I, I tell you, I'm, I'm really long disconnected from organized religion, but camping on church lawns was very, very appealing because they usually had land and there were several churches in these tiny towns. I was invited into churches. People let me stay overnight. They just say, oh, just close the door and lock it on your way out. I mean, it was the kindness of people and the way that they just, they wanted to hear a story. And I think almost everybody in this country has a cancer story, whether it's their own, a relative, a dear friend. And I was just so open about that, that, that it it started an exchange. I could be in a restaurant. I could be setting up my tent. I could be just walking around the town, taking in the sights, because, of course, I have to read everything because I kept an extensive journal. So I wanted to be able to recall this. You know, having and no course, idea, I would, yeah. And, and, of course, the journal becomes the book. The journal became the book, but, you know, that really 
was not the intention. So I had, when you talk about challenges, on the drive out to Oregon, I was looking at some of those mountain climbs. My husband, Don, and I had driven out together from Wisconsin, and I thought, what in the world am I doing? These climbs <laughs> are ridiculous. Why didn't I just tell that hospital I would ride around Lake Michigan a couple times and call it a day? Well, the bottom line is you took you did 90 days. You covered yeah. all 4,250 miles. The name of the book is Out Pedaling the Big Sea, My Healing Cycle Across America. My thanks to Elizabeth, to Chris Elliott, and to William McGee. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more interviews with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to listen, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for continuous news updates on the world of travel, just visit petergreenberg.com. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.